Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. To find more of this and other great shows, head to cageclub.me. You can find the show on YouTube by searching Hard to Believe Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Or you can support the show on Patreon by heading to patreon.com slash hardtobelieve. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at john at cageclub.me, or you can find me on Twitter at probablyrealjb. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-J-B. The show is written and produced by me. Our last two episodes about Midnight Mass and Frankenstein both explored two important themes. The fear of death and the human quest to overcome death through whatever means necessary, be it faith, science, or something else. We're going to continue to pull on that thread today by turning to the real world to look at the implications of the emerging frontiers of genetic engineering and the science of anti-aging. The 1997 film Gattaca, a film very much in the same tradition of speculative science fiction as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, envisioned a world of genetic segregation born of a eugenic genetic engineering program. The decades since haven't given us much reason to heed its warnings. But recently, that's begun to change. With breakthroughs in the mechanics of aging, and a boom in the use of CRISPR gene editing, including the 2018 announcement from a Chinese scientist claiming he'd edited two human embryos to immunize them from HIV. Mark Ryle is the author of Age Decoded, a science fiction novel that explores a world in which aging can be cured and in fact reversed. Mark taught college economics and mathematics for 22 years. He wrote Age Decoded in an effort to educate himself and the world about what he believes will be an imminent tsunami of CRISPR genetic engineering. He believes this technology will fundamentally alter human nature and that it must be carefully controlled and applied to serve humanity well. Mark Ryle is my guest today. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Mark, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, John. It's great to be on your show, Hard to Believe. I want you to talk a little bit about your book, um, not to give anything away, um, but the the reason we're speaking uh, is uh, because of the your first novel that you that you recently wrote, um, and and it, it brings up some of the questions that um, I kind of dance around quite a bit on this show, but that I've really wanted to tackle um, for a long time. And, and mm -hmm. you're the perfect person to do that with. Okay. So um, again, without giving any spoilers, uh, do you want to give a just kind of brief overview of what the book is about and like what inspired you to write it in the first place? Sure. Uh, well, the book, uh, it's called Age Decoded. And it's a uh, it's a science fiction. It's a speculative uh, science fiction, which means I'm really trying to uh, predict the future. I'm not um, trying to make up other aliens and planets and whatnot. I'm <laughs> trying to take a hard look at science and then project forward. So I, it, it starts in the year 2053, so about 30 years from now, and it goes about 200 years beyond that. I wrote the book, and the book is about um, solving aging through genetic engineering. I wrote that because... Um, I guess about 10 years ago now, I became interested in the topic of aging. I'm a, I'm a competitive triathlete. I represent Canada on the international triathlon and the world championships. So I'm athletic performance and I'm also a coach. So I'm quite interested in that whole side of things, performance. And I'm also getting older. So I noticed that, <laughs> uh, you know, I, it's like the clock just goes slow, uh, faster, right? Like, so it takes, uh, instead of doing a five minute mile, I'm doing a six minute mile. And it's like, what the, I don't feel any slower, but definitely the evidence all around me is I'm slowing down and I am getting older. I'm, I'm just turned 62. So I'm not a, I'm not a young buck anymore. And you can feel yourself slowing down. So, and talking to my fellow competitors, they can actually differentiate, um, the difference between uh, I'm in the 60 to 65 age group for world championships. They can actually, a guy who's 64 can actually sense that the guy who's 60 has a big advantage over him. like that four years they can feel. 
So, yeah. so, and, uh, so anyway, I became interested in all this when I was doing triathlons in about 10 years ago and I wrote, I thought, well, this is an intriguing topic. And I started doing a little bit of reading about it <clears throat> and I found out there is actually serious scientific research going on looking into uh, stopping aging and sometimes some even claim they may be able to reverse uh, aging, uh, which I guess for triathletes might be nice, but also I'm thinking, well, what would happen to our world? Like that's, that blew my mind. Like forget about triathlon. What would actually happen to humanity and humans and the world if uh, they, they did stop our reverse aging? So that's, I started writing about that. So, <laughs> There's so many different angles that I want to that I want to like jump on here. One of them is something that, as someone who teaches uh, religion, the 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 nature, not just um, what it is to die, but the human relationship to death, right, right. Um, is something that I that I think about a lot, and how we think of death as part of the natural process of life. Sure. Um, but I also do like one of the things I have to kind of come clean about with my with my students is. Look, I don't know. I, I I don't think that even the scientific community has a really good sense of like how we um, position death uh, as is it something that we need to do or is it the ultimate disease that we need to cure? Um, right. And there's a whole bunch of sort of medical ethics in between in between there. Um, come coming into the book and coming into beginning to think about this. Um, uh, this question, where did you land uh, or, or where were you sort of living um, in regards to that question? Yeah, I wasn't even sure, but some of my characters uh, took me in different directions. So I thought through my characters, my, I positioned myself uh, through my characters. So I have one character, ironically, his name is Jesus, even though he's a Buddhist, he's an older Buddhist. Okay. <laughs> and he's a very thoughtful He's almost 80 years old and he goes for um, what's called age decoding where they stop aging. He goes for it. And um, after, you know, decades of it, he begins to question uh, his decision. Um, he talks a lot about the, uh, the Buddhist concepts of suffering and impermanence and how they relate to humanity. And, uh, you know, there's impermanence in everything and, and um, so that this notion that you can just live forever is not not a human thing. It's it's beyond human. So you know he's he's questioning. He's philosophizing. He's uh, but there are other characters in my book who uh, go for it wholeheartedly, and uh, they they never look back, and they're quite happy to you know think that to know and think that they're going to live uh, forever. And one guy has. Um, I think he's got uh, 15 PhDs because he just loves going to school, right? So one, one is not enough anymore, right? You can just keep going back. Um, but uh, so, uh, you know, religiously too and morally and ethically, there's so many questions. Uh, maybe I could kick off with uh, um, a quotation, which is in my book, uh, quote, quoted by this Jesus fella. So it's a C.S. Lewis uh, quotation. And he wrote this for 80 years ago, 80 years ago, he wrote this. So it just, I'm fascinated that he thought that far ahead. If any one age really attains by eugenics and scientific education, the power to make its descendants what it pleases, all men who live after it will be patients of that power. And uh, he also said um, uh, a little later, what we call man's power over nature, nature turns out to be power exercised by some men over other men with nature as its instrument. So here's the thing though, right? Um, and, and I guess this is like, I think this is the, the, the question that we really have to wrestle with. Um, I'm not convinced, for instance, that uh, we are going to have the technology or the medical science anytime in, in, a future that's close enough that we would even recognize humanity anyway, um, th th that it's going to stop death from happening. But at the same time, um, it seems that there is a unspoken um, end game for medicine mm -hmm. that is to prolong life as much as possible and make it as healthy as possible. And if that's the case, then it's 
how can you argue that we're not just trying to make people live forever? Or in other words, like, is there some cutoff date where you say, okay, um, you know, you no longer get treated for this thing because you are old enough now that you can die. Both of those have very disturbing, and you might even say um, eugenic uh, overtones to them, right? And so I I wonder, like, I, I do think that, that, it is incumbent upon medicine to really like take this seriously and start thinking about it because obviously we're living, we are capable now of living longer. Um, we yes. certainly have the technology to do that, but um, you know, how do you think we should go about having that conversation? And, 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 and um, I don't know, what are your thoughts on, on, on the way that the medical community should deal with that? Yeah. Well, I think as a precursor to com- to the conversation, we need to recognize uh, that this is a new frontier. So if you're going to use genetic engineering to change humans, whether it's medically or for other reasons, uh, a scientific community, medical community, um, that is that's a com- that's a completely different um, approach than we've had so far. So far, med- medicine, and um, science and even education and social services have all been designed to um, help humans to make them smarter, maybe uh, to help you know give them good nutrition, education, whatever. But that's all naturing the humans that we are. Whereas what I'm addressing in the book, so what we would have to talk about is this um, new frontier. It's a completely different approach. It's literally changing humans like altering human nature not nurture but nature you're you're going to the fundamental structure backbone of what it is to be human what makes people human and what gives them um, identity and uniqueness psychologically and physically and you're going to change that with through the dna structure so that to me is a is um is a completely different so i think the conversation has to recognize that this is a new uh, frontier and I think it's going to be a tsunami maybe not maybe not uh, this year maybe not next 10 years although it's already starting to happen I'm reading a lot about it but it's going to be uh it's going to be a it's going to be a tsunami okay I want to pick up at that point then I'm going to come back to the immortality thing a little bit later on sure, and talk about sure. some of the yeah. philosophical implications but um I just want to I just want to challenge you on that. Um, okay. Not that I necessarily think that you're wrong, but um, that I have been hearing this for a long time, right? right? I have been I have been hearing the argument that we're on the verge of fundamentally changing humanity through genetic engineering since at least the mid '90s, and you know, Gattaca came out in 1997, and yes. um, that hasn't actually happened, right? That dystopian vision, I don't think, has has materialized right. Right. The, the human genome project that, that you've that you've talked about um right in 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 the i guess that was the late 90s right early mm-hmm. 2000s mm-hmm. um you know and so and i keep every time this happened the cloning of dolly <laughs> in the mid yes. 90s i yes. remember that very well right and every time there's this sort of almost borderline moral panic over um genetic engineering and then you hear all about like you know genetically modified food and, and there's this we've been genetically modifying food for for centuries right like there's there seems to be a lot more moral panic and a lot less um actual social consequence that is visible at least to me um, whenever these things arise now you you have also talked about CRISPR technology and i'll have you kind of explain that a little bit but um convince me convince the listeners why no, for real this time, <laughs> uh, we really are headed in this direction and we really do have to take it seriously. Yeah. The uh, CRISPR technology, the Nobel Prize was awarded uh, two years ago to two female scientists, Emmanuel Charpentier and uh, Jennifer Dudna. Charpentier is from Europe and Dudna is from UCLA. Um, so that, I think that recognized the importance of that technology and, and what they did, they didn't perfect it. No technology is perfect perfect as you know but they really uh brought it forward and made it more powerful and um <clears throat> so the the things that are happening right now with say crispr are pretty fascinating like i'm sort of uh i'm thinking wow when i'm reading some of these articles uh, a lot of them are coming out in the uh, science journals and on the internet and whatnot but they're reporting some very fascinating things i can give you a few examples so for example for example most of us would probably not argue that if we could um, 
um, stop uh, something like Huntington's disease or cystic mm -hmm. fibrosis, that would mm -hmm. be probably good for humans uh, medically. So um, they believe that they have, um, that those two, especially those two uh, um, afflictions can be dealt with fairly simply through CRISPR. Uh, so you would have to go in there and that, in the case of cystic fibrosis, I think it's just one pair of nucleotides in one gene that needs to be flipped to be, instead of C and G, it's G and C, like literally just flip the order. One. So the, um, that they could probably, some people are saying like, uh, I just read a book, um, Harvard University Print Press by a Canadian scientist, actually, her name is Francois Bailis, and she just published a book called Altered Inheritance. And she believes uh, cystic fibrosis is a prime candidate. The number of um, candidates for this is increasing quite dramatically. Um, and, you know, I'm not talking about aging. Uh, George Church, for example, at Harvard, he's all over the aging thing. He's, he thinks he's going to solve it in 15 years. I, I, I very much doubt that. You probably do too. But um, there are a lot of serious researchers, David Sinclair, UCLA, um, Shinya Yamanaka, Kyoto University, who also got a Nobel Prize for his work on stem cells, um, and he was reversing aging. Um, the But on some other, um, maybe I'll just give you a sort of an obscure example that shows you how targeted this is getting. There's a condition called amyloidosis, which is some sort of, I don't understand, but something to do with the liver and the liver produces a protein which causes all sorts of problems with, um, it's a very rare disease, but it's, it's problematic for people who have it. So they um, just recently, this summer, published a, a report that four people who had that disease, amyloidosis, um, they used genetic engineering. And what they did is um, it's very difficult to target. Like if, let's say it's easy to say, well, let's just use CRISPR, but how do you get to the tissue in the body that actually requires the CRISPR and not do the CRISPR to other parts of the body, right? So for the first time, they reported that they were able to put uh, nanobodies in, in the bloodstream of, and they did it with these four individuals. <clears throat> and then the nanobodies carried the instructions for CRISPR to be uh, used in the liver only. And then in the liver, uh, that CRISPR uh, engineering occurred. And then the protein that was being produced was no longer causing any problems. So they, they, they claim it was successful. And it's the first time I've read where they specifically sent um, the uh, genetic engineering to a specific part of the body of uh, adults. So um, that's pretty powerful. That, that tells me that, oh, there's lots of here. So I guess then, you know, what would you say? I mean, I can certainly think of a, a multitude of downsides here, especially sure. in, in this country, uh, where we have this sort of medical apartheid, um, you yes. know, between between the haves and the have nots. Um, you know, there's two things that, that sort of um, stick out to me. One is, of course, uh, as, as I think Gattaca actually gets right is the idea that like um medicine will be increasingly uh um for the rich and and yes. and and the poor will be squeezed out and so you can cure cystic fibrosis assuming that you have the money to do so yep. um right at, at birth um there's that element of it and then there's of course the other element of it which is the again kind of what I was saying about the idea of whether we classify death as a medical condition or right. um, a sort of fact of the human condition, right. um, you know, I think of something like autism, right? Where it's like, well, well <laughs> who's to say that autism is a disease uh, that needs to be cured? You know what I mean? That 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 what at what point do we start saying being um, being blonde is a disease that needs to be cured. That's like, right, yeah. right. Like how far do we go? That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Like just to take a, take one example, blindness. A lot of um, people in the blind community hearing about this don't feel, they don't feel like blindness is an affliction or, or a disease or anything. It's just a different way of living. And they're, they're a community that um, does not uh, enjoy being labeled as, uh, you know, diseased or anything like that. And they, some of them would probably not even want to change their blindness. That's just, they, uh, so, uh, but on other things like, well, things we've mentioned, like maybe cystic fibrosis or something, there's probably a fairly high consensus. Um, right. But this, yeah, all sorts of things are going to be uh, uh, on the radar screen here. Uh, I could give you an example, maybe uh, that would be controversial. Uh, and also you mentioned equity. This would be non-equitable, I, I believe. 
would be um, athletic performance. So mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know how difficult it has been to control steroid use, for example. Right. And right. Um, the, the um, World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, already has a policy. They're bracing themselves for genetic engineering. They've written a, a statement a few years ago of saying that you cannot genetic engineer to... Uh, to make yourself bigger, faster, stronger, whatever. But that's, I'm going to predict that world records will fall because of genetic engineering. They're going to be destroyed and um, they won't be able to control it. And it will be a, a non-equitable. Like if you're going to need the money and the access to get the, those technologies. That's depressing. Um. <laughs> it, it's a little depressing. Although maybe if I live forever and we're doing triathlons, I'll try to get a shot at that technology myself. You know, like, you know it's crazy, isn't it? It's really when you just mind boggles when you think about it. Uh, the other thing, though, like you mentioned, would you say blue eyes or something, right? Eye color. Yeah. yeah. That could be controllable. Right now, they could actually control that through something called pre-implementation genetic diagnosis. So what they do is uh, a couple uh, a couple that wants children would produce several um, embryos. And then those embryos would be examined for their genetic makeup. And they could, one of them might have blue eyes or different color eyes and maybe various across the embryos. And the the couple would just pick the one with the eye color they want, and then they would implant that in the uterus of the of the female of that couple, then have that child. That's already happening, but that's not genetic engineering. That's genetic screening, but it's approaching. You know. Sure, I, yeah, but you know, by any other name, I, <laughs> it's it's certainly part of the same continuum. I think that you know. That yeah, I think so. A, okay. a, yeah. a distinction without a difference, if you if you will. But like, you know, I, I'm something of a of a technology fatalist. Um, okay. You know, I, I think of like Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park saying, you know, you never yes. stop to think if you should. And it's like, well, that's really not how technology works. <laughs> <You know? laughs> if someone figures out how to make a dinosaur, they're going to do it. And that's, yeah. and that is, um, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle there. And so yep. like, I, I, you know, I think of people who are say, you know, say like, well, isn't social media awful and the cell phones that we have and we're addicted and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not going to undo that technology. It's not going to go back. And there's no reading of our technological past that wouldn't lead to that having happened anyway, right? So um, the question is then, like, how do we adapt and live with with these things? And and so I guess the question is, like, this sort of makes me think then of, like, how we might be able to create a kind of um, ethical approach to this, or at least some sort of um, argument for not, (laughs) <laughs> quote unquote curing <laughs> certain diseases. Right, so right. for instance, like I I I'm um I had childhood epilepsy. I I had you know a couple of massive seizures when I was young. And um and I think about like what if my parents knew about that in the womb and there was something they mm-hmm. could have done to, to stop it. And the thing is like I would have been a different person. Um and, and I think a lot of my ability to empathize with people, right, is is directly attributed to that experience. So I yeah. don't look at it as a deficiency or like a negative, it is fundamentally part of who I am. And, yes. and I wonder if you, th- if you have any thoughts on like making that argument in a, in a, in a sort of social discussion about this, that um, we need to be able to reserve certain things as like not diseases and, <laughs> um, and not desirable to just cure forever because, because they do have these, like you mentioned the blind community, like they do have these, um, residual effects that like help define who we are as human beings. Yeah, yeah. The the author I mentioned before, Francois Bailey's, uh, I mentioned her Canadian, put in a Canadian plug for a second. <laughs> she reminds me of my heroine in my novel, who's Doctor Frida, because right. Francois Bailey's and Doctor Frida in my novel, they both have this huge moral compass, and they really are concerned with the moral and ethical side of things. Bailey's, Bailey's in her book, it's, it's not a novel, hers is nonfiction. She talks about treatment versus enhancement, and she tries to distinguish it that way. But even then, it's a, there's gray areas of what, like, for example, blindness. Is that treatment or is that just enhancement or should we be doing it? Um, so it's, but Dr. Freedom in my novel, she's very concerned. She's the one who actually invents this age decoding, which the government wants to implement because it would be very popular making everybody stopping you know, getting, not getting any older anymore. So, but she's very reserved about it. And she's speaking out, um, even that just before they're going to implement it, she's still speaking out. Well, no, we need to look at some, uh, moral, moral, ethical issues, social issues. We need to study this 
and be more careful before we just plunge in this head first. And um, so um, I'm not giving away too much of Manalo because in the first chapter, she is um, taken away. They fake her suicide. Right. And they take her away underground and they capture her for 200 years. Uh, and they use her brain to try to invent reverse aging too. So they don't want to lose her brain, but they do want to shut her up. And that's how they do it. And her a big part of the novel is the rest of her family, especially her daughter, Zymana, um, dealing with her suicide, her apparent suicide. So getting back to the then um, immortality side of this. Yes. And, and this very, very difficult question of... Um, not just is death a disease, but is it desirable to cure that disease? Um, and what does that do? What are the implications of it? So, you know, I think a lot of really great science fiction has dealt with the um, the curse of immortality, right? Like Doctor mm -hmm. Who and mm -hmm. the idea of how much not or how much dying provides meaning and how without death, there wouldn't be any meaning. Um, I think back to what you said earlier about if you could live forever, you know, or the, the characters who, you know, says, you know, I'd get 12 doctorates or whatever. <laughs> and I often give this, this thought experiment to my, to my own students. And I say, okay, if, if you could live forever, right. If you could pick, you know, pick an age, 27, whatever it is that you're just going to be forever. Yes. Um, what would you, how would you spend the first hundred years? And I, and I get all these answers like, oh, I would travel to <laughs> Egypt and whatever. I would just like write a novel, I, you know, and I'm like, no, you wouldn't. You would sit and play Xbox for a hundred years <laughs> and then you would do it again for the next hundred years because there's no time limit. You're not going to run out of time. And so there's no urgency to get anything done. The, the essential irony to me is that, you know, the story of humanity is kind of both the um, obsessed, obsessed fear with death um, and also like the pursuit to get, to get past it, right. To, to defeat it. Right. So the, the realization that like death is, is the human condition and then also the pursuit of like defeating death. But yep. I guess if we are realistically closer than we've ever been um, and I think it's fair to say that maybe we are, um, what do you think it does look like if if we treat death as a disease the way that like Ray Kurzweil does, sure, yeah. um, and we then do solve it? Like, yeah. like in terms of what that does to humanity, and I guess the follow up question to that is: this is two parts. The follow up question to that is: um, does the does the does the effect the the way that it robs of robs us of meaning then would that do you think nullify it after a while where people would just say you know what i want to go back to dying because this isn't worth it yeah so there's a lot there's a lot in there uh, let me just start off with a little economic argument you know when something is um and that's what i taught so yeah uh, when something is uh, provided abundant and in fact is infinitely abundant mm -hmm. then it has no value like mm -hmm. it's almost valueless. It, there's no price on it because it's everybody can get it and it's abundant. So um, I would not have written this novel, for example, um, if I knew I had uh, several hundred years to live. It just there wouldn't be any urgency for me to do it. I, I don't right. think I would have gotten it out. I honestly don't think so. I'm getting a little older now and I'm thinking, yeah, it's a good time to do it. Let's get it done. <laughs> Who knows, right? I could die next year, right? Yeah. So there was a, there's certain urgency when you have limited finite time. And so one of the characters, this I mentioned him before, Jesus, uh, who's the Buddhist. Uh, <laughs> he makes a, he makes an interesting comment. Uh, let me see if you don't mind me quoting it. He says, um, "Humans with so much time naturally avail themselves of it inefficiently." Anonymous once said, "Quote: The thief to be most wary of is the one who steals your time." But then Jesus says, "But with age decoding." I believe it's the opposite. I think the thief to be wary of is the one who lends you too much time. They steal your humanity. So that, I mean, I hope that sort of answers the first part. Like people, and the nice thing about science fiction is there's a lot of uh, nonfiction being written on this right now. And there is a lot of science fiction too, but the science fiction is great because you can really get into the characters and how they feel and grapple with this mm -hmm. in reality and try to picture how people are going to react to this. And uh, that's how he's reacting. Um, there's another character. I mentioned the daughter of the of my heroine, Dr. Frida, who did not kill herself, but 
the daughter thinks she did kill herself. Um, so the daughter now is um, has no mother. Her father leaves her after the apparent death of her mother because her father has a nervous breakdown and just leaves, abandons her as a child. So now she has no father, no mother, and she can't have children because in this society, children are pretty much limited. You have to win a lottery to even have a child. Uh, to control the population. So she's um, developed a psychological condition where she sort of gnaws at herself. She's a beautiful woman, but she eats, uh, it's almost like cutting yourself, but eating yourself, eating your hand and your her right. wrist, her wrist. And uh, she's um, thinking to herself in one of the chapters, it's still a fairly early chapter, she says, here I sit gnawing pathetically, a sliver of one generation, isolated, infertile, unable to relate or reach out. I'm stuck in one egotistical dimension alone. What's it like to nurture a baby, to bring up a child, to see it walk and talk for the very first time? What's it like to listen to a son or daughter tell stories to you about school and friendships and to grow old witnessing them mature into mm. adults, companions, caregivers? What's it like to be fully experienced the cycle of life with loved ones? I'll never know the joy of being a real mother like women were in the old days. If I did come to know it, it would be in some artificial way. Yeah, that, that that actually reminds me again um, of my favorite Doctor Who story, where he becomes a human and experiences life and death, and um, it, mm -hmm. it's it, it's very sad because he has to go back to being immortal, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And it really flips that um, that that on its head. But um, you know, I, I I think too that like going back to to, to vampire lore right yeah the, the idea of immortality in 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 the the vampire lore is always a curse it's not yeah. like right and it's it's a curse that it, it seems desirable before it happens and then when it does happen it is it is um a permanent you know it's 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 the thing that you can't undo and you can't get over and you just watch people that you love die and forget about them you know thousands of years later or whatever yeah. so i guess to the second point like do you then think because I kind of suspect that we, when we have to have the reckoning of like, would we actually want to be immortal when we're forced to answer that question? Mm -hmm. My suspicion is that we would say no. Um, and that one of the reasons why I'm maybe less concerned with the idea of, um, I don't know, the, sort of sciencing our way into immortality is I'm just not convinced that that's what people want. Um, right, right. and, 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 and maybe that will prevent it from happening, yeah. but I don't know. You thought about it more. What do you think? Good question, John. Uh, in my novel, I try to level the playing field. So I make it equitable. It's free of charge for everybody. It's an easy, um, procedure. You go in for 20 minutes <clears throat> and, uh, they age to code you and most people go for it. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners yourself, myself would, I think, I would go for it if there was an option to to undo it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. if there's not an option to undo it, I don't know. That's a quite a commitment <laughs> to living forever on this earth. Um, yeah, so, and then once that happens, well, in, in my society, about 90% of people go for it. And then they, um, they bring in reverse aging about 200 years later. And then a lot of people go for that too, especially the older ones who are sort of locked in at 70 or 60 and aren't getting older but they're still old right so they want to get younger and there's a bizarre scene at that point between um jesus jesus is the grandfather zymana who's freed as the heroine so they're they're connected as grandfather father sorry father and daughter of uh, the heroine um and there's a bizarre scene between the grandfather and the granddaughter where the granddaughter says uh, why don't you go for the reverse aging uh jesus and he says yeah, I guess I could. And in 50 years, you and I will be, uh, we'll both be 25 years old. We'll be the same age. And then it's sort of, <laughs> she's thinking maybe, maybe she, she shouldn't do that. But uh, it's bizarre yeah. too, right? Yeah. yeah. So you lose that intergenerational. You're, they, we will definitely lose if we stop aging and especially if we reverse it or promote everybody being 25 or whatever it is, uh, we will lose that beautiful intergenerational um, connection that is served up between daughters, granddaughters, mothers, fathers, grandfathers, etc. I, I also wonder, like, what about some kind of compromise position where we just extend life to twice what it is now, uh, mm -hmm. and it takes you twice as long to get to, you know, 
you know, mm-hmm. your body to, you know, it's you're, you're 50 at a hundred or you're, you know what I mean? Um, what do you think about that as, as a, as a, a way of sort of saying, well, it's, it's much more like modern medicine in that what you're doing is, is buying more time and making the time, um, less painful, right? That's basically how modern medicine works. What yes. if we approach that, uh, took, took the same approach to a kind of de-aging medicine? Um, do you think that would be, uh, feasible and, and, and importantly, uh, more ethical. Yeah, both. And I think it actually may be probable too. It, that might happen before there's a complete breakthrough um, on on stopping aging. That actually mm-hmm. might happen. They might be able to, to uh, slow it um, significantly before they actually stop it or reverse it. Uh, so some of the research that's going on, like I mentioned, George Church and David Sinclair uh, at Harvard University, those two are at Harvard and Shinya Yamanaka at Kyoto University and um, also Stephen Horvath at um, UCLA. They're all sort of looking at genetic um, changes that might um, almost change the way genes express themselves without necessarily changing the genes themselves. So it's like um, we could be reading the same book or the same paragraph in a book, but you and I takes different meanings from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the expression of the gene, which is actually really important. So Church and others, for example, believe that you can you can express youthful genes that are being dampened um, with old age. You can re-express them and bring them back to life. So that would extend aging without right. really stopping aging. And he's doing that with dogs right now, apparently fairly successfully. So any and um, Sinclair thinks you might be able to even reverse aging with these approaches. These are that's called the epigenome. So you're not changing the genome; you're changing everything around it and how it expresses it itself to the body. A question for you, kind of uh, on a more kind of uh, personal level, uh, which is: I, I wonder why. So, so you came from academia; you taught mathematics and economics, and um, why did you decide to take a um, science fiction approach to this? Why not? Why not just stick with the sort of academic model of you know a, a book about what's going on <laughs> with this technology yeah. and perhaps warning against the future? Um, what do you think is the value of using um, science fiction to help illustrate these these uh, these ideas? I feel like I probably would have to be like I have a PhD in um, education, so it's not right. in economics or science. I have a science degree, but it's how much is that worth? I did it in the 1980s, right? So, um, <laughs> so, but, uh, so I felt like, uh, you know, I would not, it would not be the right approach for me to try. A, I, I, I could try it, but, um, you know, I guess Asimov did stuff like that too, right? Where, you yeah, write, um, science fiction and then real and, and nonfiction did a good job on both fronts. But, uh, no, I felt it would be much more exciting, uh, to, um, try the science fiction on that. And, uh, but like I say to people, if you took all the top experts, all these people I've mentioned, and maybe another hundred of them who are in the field, they're genomicists, and you ask them to predict the future in 200 years, it's going to be science fiction anyway, right? Mm. Let's face it. So, um, but I have learned a lot. I mean, I certainly, actually, I've learned more after writing the book than I did. uh, I wrote the book and it's holding its own. Like I haven't found anything major flaws in the science, but, um, I've since doing since publishing the book and and doing podcasts and whatnot. Um, I've learned a lot more, and I'm still learning. It's a very exciting field, but uh, there's a lot of nonfiction on this right now too. That's pretty popular, like Walter Isaacson's bestseller, The Code Breaker, all about Jennifer yeah. Dugna. And um, yeah. there are a number. This, this book I mentioned from Canada, Altered Inheritance and Editing Him, Him Humanity by uh, Kevin Davies. Those books are pretty popular, but um, it's so much more fun on the science fiction front. I got to be honest, too. It gives you the license to really use your uh, imagination. But um, even though it's speculative, I can sort of go a little crazy. And I'm not really, I guess I'm not totally accountable to an academic community. I can just uh, <laughs> reach out to people, right? And uh, have fun with it, right? And uh, But I, I'm still trying to predict the future. I'm actually seriously trying to predict the future. What, what, um, what science fiction influenced you the most? Uh, like who, 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 who did you read or do you read? Most of mine is classics. So I would say Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Uh, mm-hmm. I really love some of his uh, 
writings, H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, I love The um, Invisible Man, Isaac Asimov, I can't believe how much he wrote, Ray, Brad <laughs> Ray, <laughs> Ray Bradbury, uh, you know, like, for example, the short story, The Rocket, I just love that, uh, mm -hmm. George Orwell, and, um, you know, on the female front, our, uh, Margaret Atwood here from Canada, you know, the, the classics, I guess, I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself too, but, uh, <laughs> and I've seen Jurassic Park, and I've read Crichton's novel, which actually I thought was quite good. Like I liked the movie, but I thought the book was excellent. I don't know if you've had a chance to actually read that book. I I I was uh, I was obsessed at the age of uh, about thirteen or fourteen uh, when that okay. book came out. Uh, yeah, I read yeah, it yeah, multiple times. Yeah, um, yeah, awesome. big, I was a big dinosaur kid. Yeah, yeah, and anyway, so those are uh, a few of the uh, influences. Well, good choices. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Crichton, towards the end of his career, kind of fell off the deep end a little bit um, <laughs> right. with some questionable uh, uh, science. But um, yeah, I, I remember I read Terminal Man, and and I, I liked the the sort of speculative, um, you know, way he talked about medical ethics. Yes, um, even in Jurassic Park, which which the book, of course, has a lot more about that than. The movie does, which is more about running away from dinosaurs, yes. but yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> both both spoke to my thirteen-year-old heart. So actually, um, the one that really, uh, if, if I could go back on that, the A Clockwork Orange is uh, now. I yeah. have not read the book. I should go, um, but I watched the movie, and there the uh, psychological aspect is strong, right? And yeah. uh, in my book, Age Decoded, I actually have thrown in a psychological spanner in the works. And it's um, so we've talked about aging, age decoding, and all that. But I, th every technology is a double-edged sword, right? And so I throw in a uh, a tinkering that goes on when people go in for that twenty-minute procedure. They're unaware of uh, there's a, one psychological trait that is altered while they're in there. And uh, I wouldn't put that past anybody. That sort of tinkering. Yeah, sure. No, I and, and of course, I mean, Clockwork Orange. Again, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, which is the idea of like what is a disease, um, which which you know the the Ludivico method um, assumes that violence is in some way um, mm -hmm. a disorder, right, and that it can be it can be um, <laughs> hacked out of the human brain, um, which which presents a whole bunch of um, human nature and ethical questions. That yeah, and that, that this is going to happen. Like that's. Uh, Figured like I think that was a stark figurative example, but this is going to happen on the genetic front. So right now I'm reading about right. how they, uh, for example, they think they can um, use genetic engineering to stop depression. Well, they've you know just recently they they've uh, they've looked at um, bipolar disease. There's Icon um, School of Medicine in New York, I believe, is in New York, and they they published a study genetically isolating uh, something like a few dozen genes involved in depression several also overlap with sorry i said uh, bipolar so bipolar overlapping with schizophrenia and also overlapping with depression so those three mm. conditions overlap like they're not clear and simple like right uh, it's like cystic right. fibrosis right so if you're going to go in and tinker there like you said who what else is going to be affected and what's the mixed what are the unintended side effects and all of that that's all going to be very interesting see how they try to handle that. Then I always think of like a John Forbes Nash, because I mean, you're an economist, right? And, yeah. and it's, you know, would he have been the genius he was without schizophrenia? Exactly. It's a really hard question to answer, right? Like, it is hard. Like, uh, if you, yeah, let's say you've, there's some people believe, I don't know for sure, that there is a connection between schizophrenia and genius and creativity, yeah. let's say. Yeah. So, uh, for example, let's say parents try to select kids who are more creative or try to create kids that are more creative. Well, then, what are you selecting out, or what are you? What else are you affecting? So these are complicated things. We have something like 30, 25 to thirty thousand genes, and we have something like four billion pairs of nucleotides in us. So even if there's a few genes involved and there's overlapping with other traits and psychological conditions, why not? That gets pretty complicated. I now that you thought about this and and you know dug into it. Um, how should we be having this conversation? Like, uh, how, how do we uh, collectively as a species within the medical community and the science community, et cetera, like, how do we have this discussion to make sure um, yeah. that the worst doesn't happen? Yeah, I, I can recommend uh, Dr. Belise's book, and it's called Altered Inheritance. She talks a lot about what 
already is happening in the scientific community to try to um, control and frame genetic engineering to keep it safe and more somewhat equitable and whatnot. So uh, there are a number of, for example, commissions and committees have already been set up. They had one in New York a couple of years ago, which was a huge symposium um, of uh, big thinkers. And they had the, the uh, UN has a committee on this. And there, there's a number of uh, organizations like the, uh, the academies of science have had two meetings on this, on editing human genomes and whatnot. So, but the problem is, there are so many actors involved. There are uh, research um, companies, a number of private uh, corporations, huge corporations. There are um, university researchers. There are foundations and uh, university academies and foundations, um, uh, especially in China, the United States, the two biggest. Um, and then there are you know private players and and then um, academics and so it's it's really a mixed bag many players, many actors all involved in this and it's not going to be easy. So how you ask, how do we sort of, I don't know, get involved or, you know, get, take some control. Um, Bailey said it pretty well. She said, we need to get everybody involved, not just politicians, not just scientists. Everybody's got to um, recognize what's coming down at us and we need to um, engage, get everybody engaged, business people, regular people, parents, um, not just scientists and politicians. And, um, so I, that's the, that's probably what we're going to need to just keep it, um, mm -hmm. under yeah. control. Um, it's a little like, I guess, nuclear technology where, um, the world has tried to control it, keep it used for peaceful means. We've done, well, we've, we've done a reasonable job there. I know like we spend tons of money on it. the world the atomic energy group has done a good job and the nuclear suppliers group, an excellent job. Um, but. The fact is that there are, I think, nine nations with nuclear technology right now, and none of them have signed the treaty this year, which is uh, which is a uh, treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons. A lot of other countries signed it, but none of those nine signed it. But we still have done not a bad job controlling that and keeping tabs on it and watching out for it. And uh, I think we're going to have to do this with this nuclear technology. I mean, even something like a bioterrorism threat, we now know what something like a virus like COVID can do to the world. Mm, what would happen right. if someone designed a uh, genetic engineered, uh, you know, a, a, a variant of that, that's a hundred times more potent. Like, I don't even want to think about it. Well, that. if you ask Alex Jones, it's already happened. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like Bill Gates talked about this a few years ago. He honestly said uh, the next pandemic is going to come, but that's not as bad as bioterrorism will be a lot worse. Right. Yeah. He's worried about that. Yeah, rightly so. I, I think actually, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the um, the nuclear issue because I think that's actually a somewhat hopeful way of thinking about it. Um, that we do have the ability to wipe out entire, you know, swaths of the earth, push of a button, and we haven't actually done that much. Uh, especially when you think of like worst case scenario to you know um, to, to to best case scenario, we, we we've sort of hedged towards the best case scenario, even though it's been a lot of work, right, and a lot of money. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, we have sort of stayed on that side of the fence, which is um, a cause for some optimism. Interestingly, just on this topic, if I could expand just yeah, slightly, I course. did just read about something coming out of MIT. It's the Broad Institute. They do a lot of genetic influence uh, research there. <clears throat> just came out a few weeks ago. It's called anti-CRISPR. So they feel, <laughs> yeah, like this is, you might actually be able to use technology to save yourself from this technology. Oh, wow. So they feel like anti-CRISPR would, would help um, with CRISPR so that the, the side effects are minimalized. Like when you go in and you edit genes, there are some side effects in the genes and the nucleotides next to that area. Like you can damage stuff around there because it's not perfect. But this could also be used to as an antidote to anything that is injected to genetic engineer people. You can block. So that's very interesting. There's also CRISPR on and CRISPR off for reversing CRISPR, which is being studied uh, just, again, just came out a couple months ago at the, um, there's an institute near MIT, um, the Whitehead Institute. They are looking at CRISPR on, CRISPR off. So you got anti-CRISPR, CRISPR on, CRISPR off, CRISPR. It's all advancing. And uh, it's, I'm telling you, it's going to be a tsunami. It's, it's happening very quickly. Oh, geez.
Um, all right. So uh, before I let you go, I, you, you are you are as you. I'm not gonna since you've already said your age. You're 62 years young. Uh, yes. You are. You seem to be having a good time. Um, <laughs> in, enjoying enjoying life. Do you think you have another book in you, or is that is that is that a one and done situation? Yeah, I'm I'm sort of uh, tinkering right now with an. Uh, uh, a nonfiction on training and running and coaching. So I've been working on that for a while too. So I, I would like to maybe go back and, uh, and keep working on that. So, and, the, but the idea of doing a sequel or another sci-fi does appeal to me. And, um, so I'm just starting to get some fairly positive feedback on this novel. Cause I put it out with no reviewers, no publisher or anything. So yeah. you're not, you're not, and no website, you're not really supposed to do that, but now it's getting some, <laughs> you're not getting, I'm now getting some reviewers, just got another one today. And, uh, you know, the, the uh, um, people are reading it and then word of mouth and whatnot and reviewing it. So it's just starting to gather some steam on some of these platforms like Amazon. And so I'm getting, you know, with that feedback, I'm thinking of, uh, doing a sequel, uh, but um, I'm not working on one as of, as of yet. I'm working on this nonfiction book. If if people want to find out more about you or the book or whatever, um, where should they where should they have? Yeah, so if they just um, type in the title "Age Decoded," there's a hyphen in there. Age hyphen decoded. Um, Mark Ryle. It'll it'll show up on their favorite retailer, whether it's uh, Amazon or Apple or some of the various other sites the biggest ones um and then there's a description on there there's an author bio and there's even i think some links to some of the uh some of the podcasts i've done recently so they can get to know me and they can order the book it just came out on print too that took a while so it was it was an ebook originally for i think the price was around ten dollars us but it's just come out on print book too although it's a little more expensive i think it's about 20 two dollars us on print but i'm i'm happy to see that uh, people who aren't into ebooks but they like a physical book can read it now too well mark fascinating stuff and um thanks so much for the conversation appreciate it yeah it was an absolute pleasure john uh I, i'm uh, honored to be on your show and uh you keep up the good work too thank you so much Are you a fan of in-depth conversations on a wide variety of subjects? Then you need to head out on the open highway. I'm Eric Erickson. I bring my crazy career and interests in a variety of subjects to the show. And since I seem to know, well, a little bit about everything, it's just enough to get me into trouble. The open highway is like going on a road trip and meeting all different sorts of people. It's that old idea of sitting at that diner counter, having coffee, and talking with folks with completely different backgrounds. One episode might be a political operative, the next a professional wrestler, and the next a philosopher, just having good old-fashioned conversation. If it's interesting to me, I'm sure it'll be interesting to you too. The Open Highway, new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Get them wherever you find your favorite podcasts.